Hey there guys, it's the Man Scout Jake Manning, and today's episode of 10 Bell Pod is brought to you by the 10 Bell Pod Patreon, guys. Guys, I hope you've been like contributing to the Patreon. I'd really like you guys to be patrons of this podcast. And especially if you are a $50 tier member, if you got a very special gift, and that's part of the reason why I'm on today, because one of the special gifts in the $50 tier is my six-disc DVD set, where you will see such matches where I wrestle... Bobby Eaton, get the crap beat out of me by Terry Funk, Jerry Lawler, Caleb Connolly, basically all of my friends who are more famous than I am. Uh, all, all kinds of great matches are on there, guys, and you can get that with a $50 tier if you contribute to our Patreon, which all you have to do is just go to patreon.com backslash 10 bell pod. 10 is in the numbers, bell and then pod instead of podcast because we're cool but anyways guys make sure you jump onto the patreon get out there support and we appreciate the support if you already have now let's get into today's episode of 10 bell pod Listen, if somebody was going to do a podcast about the great Bruno San Martino, you would have to start in obviously Italy, and then you come across the country, and then Madison Square Garden, where I met Toose Mount, and then the Vince Senior, and the Vince Junior, and then Vince One, Vince Two, Vince Three. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, it's me, Mansco Jake Manning, uh, doing my Bruno San Martino impersonation, which sounds a lot like uh, my Dracula or Count Dracula. I thought the thing was going to be the, the the trivia is that Bruno San Martino was actually the Count on Sesame Street. Yeah, little yeah. known fact. No little, one knows. Little, little known fact. Little known fact. He, he is that. I didn't realize that uh, Abruzzi, Italy was so close to Transylvania. <laughs> I, I was unaware of that fact. So, all right, welcome to Ten Bell Pod, where we discuss the life and death of pro wrestlers. I'm Nick <laughs> Alexander. I'm here in the Manning Cave. <laughs> He's way too happy about this. I am joined by MMA nerd and artsy movie expert Michael Loving. Yeah, I don't have any uh, refs to shit on. Go on. <laughs> And we're sitting here with the Man Scout, Jake. Man Scout is two words, Manning. The living legend, <laughs> Man Scout, Jake Manning. Endorsed by Bruno San Martino and Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is going to be our first dip into the olden days of pro wrestling. Because today we're covering a man that sold out Madison Square Garden 187 times. He held the world championship for a combined 4,040 days, and he was the walking embodiment of the American dream, not Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> I was about to he say. was Bruno San Martino. Now, Bruno gets called the Babe Ruth of professional wrestling, and I think that's how I view him because he's someone I've always heard about. I've seen random clips, I've heard the epic stories and the impossible to believe numbers. But like Babe Ruth, his entire career was done before I was even born. 
Yeah, and you when you talk about you know Bruno, like when you talk about like success or like you know even just in a joking manner, or you're talking about like oh it's about as successful as Bruno in the garden. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. like that's like the analogy you use for how successful or how something great is. Like oh is it like Bruno in the garden? <laughs> like it's that that's just the top the pinnacle of what you refer to as success. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever even heard of bruno because you know my prime wrestling years the 90s he wasn't even mentioned in the business for reasons we'll get into later the first time i ever heard about bruno san martino i was going down this pro wrestling rabbit hole <laughs> i ended up looking at wwe title runs yep that's exactly where I, was, I was about to jump in on the I, same thing and i was like holy shit this website has a typo <laughs> on it this is clearly not correct this uh, man had this belt for 43 yeah, years. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. Like you're I, probably looking at it when they're trading the belt every 40 days, yeah, yeah. and you're seeing a man hold it for, what is it, like Almost seven years? years? Yeah. You're like, did, it, did the thing go out of business, and then it re-upped, and <laughs> yeah. it was just, they, they counted it? Yeah, did he only defend it three <laughs> times a year? Like, how is does he that a even... super Brock Lesnar that doesn't do even less? How is this possible? <laughs> what makes it even more incredible is that he, he wrestled every damn night yeah. and defended it, you know? Like, and which, Drew! Which, every... which we'll get into that. I got some stories about that as well, but you know, let's just jump in on the rest of him, so. But <laughs> after covering Bruno, after watching a few of his matches after hearing him speak for hours and hours <laughs> he's the real deal on yeah, so many different levels i i am a huge bruno Martino fan right now oh yeah he's he's the man and then i'm not just saying that because he looks like a well he look he looks like a younger version of me like i look like, <laughs> yeah. like he's yeah. bald head mustache um that's how he looked out when he looked in the 70s i look like him and i'm 36 years old so he looked like a younger version of jake manning <laughs> in, in his 70s in so. a pokemon evolution it's you stone cold steve austin bruno sammartino <laughs> <laughs> i could only wish i could and, only wish he's also he is maybe the most loved wrestler of all time like like 80s hulk 90s rock and austin even today like on youtube on every bruno video just flooded with comments of people like pouring their hearts out yeah. about bruno sammartino stories about watching him with his dad and going there and crying during matches yeah. and just the emotion that he pulled and put into people it was insane all right, so before we get into Bruno changing wrestling forever, let's get into his beginnings. And boy, his first eight to ten years on planet Earth are not very good. So, I uh, forgot to brush up on my Italian before doing this. Bruno Leopoldo Francisco San Martino was born October 6, 1935 in Piso Abruzzo, Italy to <laughs> Alfonso and Emilia San Martino. A lot better than your Japanese. A lot better. <laughs> he was the youngest of seven children and he was a survivor as four of his siblings died at an early age. When Bruno was just three months old, his father went to America to work in the steel mills of Pittsburgh. And while living in Italy, this whole kerfluffle happened. Really? Uh, you're gonna you're gonna turn into a Sesame Street term? It was it was uh, World War II. Maybe okay. you've heard of it. Uh, during World War II, Italy fell to the Nazis, who were real dicks. You can quote me on that. It was September eighth, nineteen forty-three, when the SS finally made their way to Bruno's hometown in Pisa. 
And the people of Piso Ferretto had never even seen a car before, <laughs> yeah. but they were being approached by trucks full of SS soldiers, tanks, and bomber planes. Bruno said it felt like it was the end of the world. The people of Piso were forced out of their homes, to, and they had to take shelter wherever they could, and those were the lucky ones because Bruno said that a third of his town were murdered on site by SS soldiers. The uh, eight-year-old Bruno, his sister Mary, his brother Paul, and his mother Amelia would flee to a mountain called Valoraca, where they would hide from the Nazis. So Bruno's mother, Amelia, is a bona fide badass. Yeah, she is like legit. the Navy Seals of moms. Uh, while hiding in the mountains, she would walk two-day round trip into German-occupied towns scavenging for food and supplies. Not only could she have been killed by literal Nazis if she was spotted, but she also had to watch out by bombs that the British were dropping on Piso trying to get the Nazis out. Ugh. While hiding in the mountains during the winter, all the San Martino family had to survive on sometimes were snow for up to two to three days at a time, which is much different than the snow Jimmy Snooker survived on for two or three days at a time. Or the yellow snow that my cousin made me eat, uh, and I thought it was supposed to be tasty and it wasn't gross <laughs> so eventually two nazis found them in the mountains they were hiding out uh, bruno and his family were lined up and the nazis were setting up a machine gun and even in the face of sure death bruno's mom amelia kept everyone calm and positive and bruno said he felt at peace which think about that an eight-year-old child making peace with death is very hard yeah she was telling him that they're going to heaven and everything's gonna be okay and he was okay with it and it was and he bruno's telling these stories and he's so okay, happy and okay and i'm just like oh god <laughs> fuck uh, this is a comedy podcast <laughs> uh, luckily for the san martinos their lives were saved when two men making their way up the mountain to see their family snuck up on the nazis killing them with knives but this wouldn't be their last run in with the Nazis. Uh, Amelia would once be captured and put on a truck. They were taking her north when she jumped off of a moving truck to hide in bushes and briars, knowing that if she was found, she would 100% be shot. There was definitely an explosion behind her after <laughs> as she jumped off the truck for fucking sure. Meanwhile, Bruno's <laughs> dad is working in a steel mill going, gosh, I've had a really tough day. <laughs> <laughs> if you think World War II is hard, you should see Pittsburgh Steelers defense. <laughs> cut, cut to five, sec five minutes of him like, this fucking hangnail is really yeah, this, annoying. This factory work is not what I thought. This is a really tough day. Uh, just, still man. hurting my ass. <laughs> so Bruno, Mary, Paul, and Amelia survived on Valoraca for 14 months before the Germans were ran off by Allied troops. Which, yay, but it's not like they just went back to school the next morning and worked the next day. You know, The people of Pisa Fuerto returned home to find their town littered with dead bodies their homes in shambles, parts of Piso, literal minefields. All they could do is start rebuilding. The man took what the Germans left behind as far as guns and ammo, and they formed a militia. And with the help of Allied soldiers, they were able to fight off any attempts for the Germans to come back to take Piso. Now, if that's not a rough enough origin story for you, Bruno at this time was also suffering from rheumatic fever and almost died. His mother, in a desperate attempt to save his life, even put leeches on Bruno to suck out the infection, which may or may not save his life. Uh, there's a lot of science that argues against 
The leech is... Hey, she didn't do any bloodletting, so, yeah. you know, hats off to her. But there's a lot of uh, decades of medical history that say that leeches are good for no, you. it's true, so, it's true. Up until that point. <laughs> she didn't rub chicken gizzards on him, so she's doing all right. And, you know, we make a little light of at Bruno's dad uh, taking it easy over here in America. He was actually had his own hell to deal with. When Nazis were controlling Italy, not only could he not travel back, no mail could get in and out. So he had no clue if his wife and children were alive or dead. So soon after, America would win World War II all by themselves, and not because Stalin no, threw millions of Russian bodies no, 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 no. and impossible we didn't have a huge no, 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 no. public school. Um, America! <laughs> it was then San Martinos were finally able to reconnect with their dad in America through letters sent by the Red Cross. This was in 1945 when they finally, like, it was a couple years with no contact. So Bruno's parents started making plans to come to America, and they almost came two different times, but Bruno was so sick, he couldn't pass the physical. But in 1950, Bruno finally passed the physical, and the San Martinos hopped on a boat to join the, the dad over in Pittsburgh. And this story is already better than most stories we've discussed on this yeah, podcast. In say. fact, that uh, his earlier life was uh, turned into a movie or discussed to turn into a movie. Or at least I read somewhere it was supposed to be a movie. Bruno, yeah, the, lots of attempts to do it, but obviously with Bruno, he had his convictions, and they were trying to Hollywood it up, uh, and they tried to turn it into something bigger and better. And he was like, "No, you just tell the story as is, and it's a good enough story." But uh, yeah, he had his integrity wouldn't let him make it into this big spectacle, so they, he declined. According to him, he declined. They just changed his name to Private Ryan. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. that's what that movie's about. Yeah, it's good. So uh, when the San Martinos arrived in the U.S., Bruno spoke no English, and he was sickly from the war years. At this time, he was 14 years old, and he weighed 83 pounds. And this made him an easy target for bullies who, in person, online bullied him. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine well, that. So eventually, Bruno made friends with Maurice Simon, who took Bruno and his brother to the Young Men and Women Hebrew Association. I was going to do It's Fun to Stay at the... I'm, I'm just going to skip. He, yeah, okay. maybe, yeah, maybe just skip it. Because I'm fighting every ounce of energy in me to, to get on a soapbox thing about how we treat immigrants today. And I was going to say, we didn't mention Trump once with these, the whole... These, uh, these horrors and atrocities yeah. are still going on in the world, but more updated. And yet uh, we are yelling at people that are in a caravan. It's like even back then, he failed the physical. What is this, an NBA trade? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, it, it's, it's lucky that, you know... Emilio San Martino wasn't suspected as being a, a Middle Eastern that might sneak in and be a terrorist. Imagine if someone was standing at the gates of America, like maybe today they are, uh, shooing people away. We would never have had Bruno San Martino. That's. I think that should be the news spin that we, <laughs> the Fox News has to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it was at the uh, <laughs> YM YH YMH. At the Young Men's and Women's Hebrew Association <laughs> that he discovered amateur wrestling and his deepest passion, weightlifting, and a path was set for Bruno San Martino to become one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And isn't that the way it always works? You're small, you're, you're bullied, yeah. you discover weightlifting at a community center, 
Usually you're never like involved in like high school athletics or, or school athletics and you just discover it on your own. You get your own passion for it as opposed to being forced upon you by a coach like, hey, you need to put on 20 pounds worth of muscle. No, you discover it on your own. You turn into this monster and then you become a huge success story. As uh, Bruno said in some of his uh, shoot interviews, like when he was doing it, when he was starting off just like internally to himself, he was like, there was something special that is going to come out of this. Yeah. So as far as pro wrestling, Bruno's dad rented out a room to an Italian family, and they had this new modern contraption called a television. And they invited Bruno to come watch Italian boxer turn pro wrestler Primo Carnera. And from that point on, uh, Bruno was a fan of the sport. Now, by 58, just eight years after coming to America, weighing around 80 pounds, Bruno Sammartino had bulked up to an insane 265 pounds. In 59, Bruno even set a world record in bench press, lifting 565 pounds without a bodysuit or wrist straps, and done without steroids, which didn't become popular with, with athletes until the 70s. And he also had the two-second weight, too. He yeah, didn't immediately yeah. pop it up. He held it. And then popped it back up. In a, in a video, Kevin Sullivan was talking about how strong Bruno was. And he said with a bodysuit and wraps like today's powerlifters use, Bruno easily could have done 700 pounds. But mm-hmm. we know what Kevin Sullivan yeah. has been a part of. <laughs> he could have done 1,000 had he only participated in a sacrificial ritual to the Lord of Darkness. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a good point to all the kids out point. there. Yeah, it's a good, real good point. <laughs> And also, while we're talking about how crazy strong Bruno was, we covered Lex slamming Yoko, Hulk slamming Andre. Bruno slammed the over 600-pound Haystacks Calhoun. Again, steroid and cocaine-free. Which was one of the early uh, spots that really put Bruno on the map because everybody's like, Haystack Calhoun, this dude is just a, a walking just monster. And... Bruno was he challenged him on like radio and the promoters gave him shit and then he finally got his opportunity and he was talking about how when he it's like can he really get him up can can Bruno get this monster up and we're like he said just the energy in in the uh, in M- MSG when he like he pick he went to pick him up and they're like <gasps> yeah and and then he finally did it and that like Bruno says that was the first thing he always in, is indebted to Haystack Calhoun just for for letting him put him over like that. First off, Haystack Calhoun's one of my favorite names in general <laughs> of all time. One of the funniest greatest names ever. And I think Haystack was billed at like 606 or something. Bruno said they put him on some type of like cattle scale or something. <laughs> yeah. It was actually like 620. And they so, say, and then later in the later in his years, he would like lose some or uh, lost some weight, and then people would slam him and said that oh, we sl- I slammed Haystack Calhoun, yeah. but uh, yeah, Bruno was like, but I slammed him when he was his fattest. <laughs> mm-hmm. So after high school, Bruno was offered a wrestling scholarship from the University of Pittsburgh. Bruno knew he could wrestle at that level, but he didn't think he could handle the academics. Now, Bruno is a very smart, very well-spoken man, even speaking in a second language, which is mind-blowing. But it's hard for an immigrant to come straight to America and learn advanced levels of subjects from English textbooks, especially when the attitude is, these goddamn Italians coming over here with their endless fucking breadsticks and pasta primavera. I'll tell you what, you can take your magic breadsticks, you can get out. These damn Italians living in their neighborhoods, you know, 
believing in whatever god they believe in <laughs> over there. They're probably over thinking about some terrorist attack, but it's just like that Mussolini fell. That's yeah. what they are. Yeah, that's what they are. I, I just like Nick uh, Nick's rage. You're just like, I make good food at a good restaurant. Fuck the Olive Garden. Oh, Barry, Olive Garden. But that's, that's part of the reason that probably Bruno became what he became as far as like, I have to make sure I have to speak very well. I have to come off as a very honorable, respectful man because of all of these stereotypes against Italian people because they were... There's prejudice against them, much like we have prejudice against every immigrant yeah. now today. So it's like I have to be at my best behavior at all moments in time. People are looking for me to fail. They want, they're looking at me at an opportunity to tell me no for whatever I ask for or need in life. I have to be better. I have to be stronger. I have to be yep. as smart as I possibly can. So I just put him on such a straight and and direct path to whatever he wanted to yep. achieve and success in life. Totally, 100%. So Bruno ended up not going to college. His dad got him an apprenticeship as a carpenter, and he also joined the National Guard. Um, while working his regular jobs, Bruno was still wrestling. He was still lifting. He won a weightlifting contest, which got him a spot in the newspaper. That newspaper article landed him a spot on sportscaster Bob Prince's TV show, and it was there he was spotted by Rudy Miller, who worked for Vince Sr. Impressed with Bruno's size and amateur wrestling background, Rudy sets up Bruno for a tryout in Washington, D.C. at the headquarters of Capital Wrestling Corporation. And that is where Vince Sr. and the pride of Garden Grove, Iowa, Tootsmont... <laughs> Tootsmont, can we get yeah, okay. That's what a where name. they met Bruno. And, they and just the way Bruno said it, I was like, Tootsmont. 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 <laughs> and Vincent, now, Toots to, now Toots did most of the booking. Vincent handled all the TV. I'm sorry, what did you say? Tootsmont. What? <laughs> Tootsmont. <laughs> it's so good. It's so smart. <laughs> like, um, I don't want to hear anybody else say Tootsmont <laughs> other than Bruno Toots San Martino. Like... Just, it just rolls off his tongue far easier than anybody else's. Oh, you know Toots. <laughs> oh, that's the thing. Like all the old times, you know old Toots. You know, old Toots. Old Toots Mon over here. <laughs> well, old Vince Senior and Toots Mon, they, they liked Bruno. They offered him a job and scheduled him a couple months to start training. Bruno would make his professional wrestling debut with studio wrestling outside of Pittsburgh on December 17, 1959, pinning Dimitri Grabowski in in 19 seconds. Now, we're at the wrestling portion of Bruno's story. Let me say his career is hard to cover. He wrestled in the 60s, the 70s. This was before there were TV tapings and pay-per-views every two days. If there were a lot of coverage, it would take us 10 episodes to cover Bruno Sammartino. Most of Bruno's info comes straight out of his mouth during shoot interviews and documentaries, which is nice. Bruno seems like a very honest guy with integrity. Unlike some shoot interviews, you can take Bruno's word as gold. But that's how guys trick you when you really think they're telling (laughs) the truth. That's how they trick you. So, just, I'm just putting it out there. Are you disparaging the good no, no, disparaging. goddamn name of Bruno San Martino? I'm putting, putting the old age old philosophers uh, uh, questioning out there of always doubt. 
always doubt. Okay, well, why don't we just put doubt in this whole podcast? <laughs> like, we, we actually laid down the fact that we're like, well, we're going to talk about is factual, and now you're like, no, nah, it's going to be all bullshit, because Bruno said so. I'm just saying, do your own research. I'm just so. saying, I want to shit on this podcast <laughs> and just ruin the next hour, this is what you're saying. That works for me. All right, so WWE Network has a decent collection of matches starting as early as 74. The earliest I found on YouTube was a match in 63. But Jake, the wrestling encyclopedia that you are, I wanted to ask, for some people who have never seen a full Bruno San Martino match, how would you describe Bruno's style, uh, maybe some of his moves? What was a Bruno match like? Well, uh, you know, in doing a lot of research for this, um, you know, wrestling was different because he was still viewed by a much larger portion of, of the country as being legit. Yeah. And and part of the way that you do that is, obviously, there's a lot more wrestling because wrestling's on the marquee. So you're going to do a lot more wrestling holds, which are a little bit more believable. You're not going to do a whole lot of whipping off the ropes, except in certain moments and times and backdrops. And suplexes are a little bit more believable. So, like, grabbing a guy, wrestling guy, picking him up and slamming him down. So... You know, Bruno is doing a lot of that because he's a strong, strong man, and people can buy that someone who looks like Bruno San Martino can pick somebody up and give them a backbreaker. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's fairly believable. But you're not going to see guys coming off the top rope. You're not going to see a lot of a lot of backdrops. Um, you might see a drop kick from somebody. So the whole style is very um, thought under the lens of like we need to make this look as realistic as possible. It's almost like if you take UFC now and you're like all right let's let's put a few fancy things in there yeah. like it, it'd be it'd very be very similar to that but we can't have as many strikes obviously so let's take the mat base uh you know judo style of which you'd see in, in mma but let's take out the strikes you know and replace it with like clubs across the chest and and just kind of put in a couple of high spots a couple of backdrops here so it'd be very similar to that but like i said someone like bruno like a strong man him picking up guys and suplexing guys it's a, it's a believable thing a lot of bear hugs a lot of power moves yeah. he's just very legit strength yeah exactly because you know it's a feat of strength like and at this time like another man picking up another man that's that's a big deal like he could hit he could hit a vertical suplex and people would lose their damn mind or him picking up another man and dropping him over his knee like bane would be like a big deal so (laughs) and it'd be believable for bruno sammartino who's built like bane so after bruno's debut he began wrestling for the mcmahon family's capital wrestling corporation having his first match against Jack Vansky December 22nd, 1959 and Jack Vansky was one of the guys Bruno worked with during his tryout. So Bruno was kind of hanging around the bottom of the card which frustrated him and to make matters worse, Buddy Rogers came into the territory and dominated as the top star and not only was Buddy Rogers wanting to stay on top, he wanted to get his friends over by using Bruno as enhancement talent which Bruno refused. Which, that's one of the things that Buddy Rogers did. Like, it's very similar in the sense of Hulk when he went to WCW. He got all his friends hired, and one of the things that Buddy did was he would bring a crew of guys like, hey, these are the guys I like hanging out with, (laughs) and they're really good wrestlers. And and some of them probably were. They were probably good wrestlers. But they would do a lot of times, they'd go to a territory, hotshot the territory, which is like do a lot of angles, um... And do stuff that usually happens over a matter of three months, but do it in a matter of 
weeks or Just days. Do a lot of money. In. Yeah, and again, it works great initially, but then there's nowhere to go after that right. and then they just pull out and leave taking all the money and getting all the success and getting all the cuts of the houses leave and then the promoters went left with like these dead shows <laughs> yeah, dead houses do and it's like what do we do now we just did three months worth of work in the matter of three days and now that guy is gone who mm. became the better of it so that's kind of what buddy did he didn't quit it <laughs> yeah pretty much and you know buddy rogers he was he was the man in the day, and he yeah. could do that. Like I said, it's very, very reminiscent of, of Hulk and, and WCW and, and NWO the stuff. Disciple. Or the disciple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The way he took care of his people, he can't... But at the same time, too, like, you know, I mean, Buddy's looking out for his guys. Yeah. No, nobody's probably going to look, look look out for those guys, and Buddy's the top guy, and he has the ability to do that. I mean, I can't befault him for doing that, but yeah. when you're... On the side of it, of Bruno, you could be a bit more empathetic and and see more of the other side of the argument. So, well, Bruno did not want to look out for Buddy's guys, and since Bruno was like a year into the business at this point, this got him some backstage heat. And you, but you'll see throughout his life, Bruno stood up for what he believed in, no matter what, uh, whether it hurt him financially or in the business. He was a man of integrity. Yeah, uh, for he, sure. He's like, I'm gonna stand on what I believe in because. I was stuck in front of a Nazi machine gun when I was eight, and I was okay with dying. So why am I going to back down to you, a guy who wants me to uh, fake lose to your buddy to make (laughs) him look cool? Like, I don't care. (laughs) Like, you know, like, I'm going to do what's right because I don't know when I'm going to have to face down that Nazi machine gun again. So, Which, Micah... Is on record of calling Bruno Sammartino a liar and denying the Holocaust. And just oh wait, you said what was the second thing you said? <laughs> <laughs> so eventually they call Bruno into the office, ask him who the hell he thought he was, and he said nobody. But he's not if he's not going to get a shot in this territory, he wants to go somewhere else, which you know reasonable I guess. Bruno put in a proper notice for his release, and he filled all his dates, so he thought. This part was conveniently left out of Bruno's WWE documentary. They actually set him up. They booked him uh, for an extra date without him knowing that he obviously no-showed. When Bruno went to San Francisco to work for Roy Shire, he was suspended by the Athletic Commission. So Bruno heads to Indy, and basically the same thing happened to him. So Vince Sr. was trying to blackball Bruno, calling up promotions and telling him not to work with him, and the whole time Bruno's in the dark on this and has no yeah. clue what the hell's yeah, going he was, on. Yeah, because he was booked in, they double booked him in Baltimore and Chicago. And because of the athletic commissions are kind of in the take with the promoters, the they're like, see, this guy no-showed. Well, if we, we can't have people that no-show since we're the regulatory body, right. we'll suspend him. And then Senior's running all the bookings. So you can say, oh, well, we'll send Bruno down to you. Bruno not informed that he has to be yep. in Baltimore for this. Kind of yeah. tough so to the, know. Things. And then all the other territories fall in line because, you know, Capital Wrestling was at that time kind of part of the nwa they worked with the nwa but they weren't necessarily they didn't 
they didn't really see like they had they were close to the NWA, but they weren't super close to some of their other territories. But this is like a very buddy buddy system at this time. Wrestling is is much smaller at this time, yeah. and all the promoters can work together. They're all having meetings together. They're all working together. There's not like this big division that you know this guy can only work here, or this guy, or screw this guy, or don't do work. Like he could be very close. So you could blackball somebody very easily yeah. at this moment in time. And this followed him wherever he went. So Bruno was basically starving to death. He had just been married at this point, too. He had a family to take care of. So he went back to Pittsburgh, hopped back into construction work. And it was while he was working construction that a wrestling show came to town that had his pal Yukon Eric on it. And upon finding out that Bruno was still blackballed, he advised Bruno to call up Toronto promoter Frank Tunney because Toronto had a Italian population of about a half a million, and they thought Bruno could maybe pump some life into that territory that was almost dead. And it's funny hearing this story because it's very reminiscent of when Hulk Hogan first started wrestling, and he, he did it for a few years, and he wasn't making a whole lot of money, and he just left and he became a laborer in Florida. And it was uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, hunted him down was like hey what are you doing you could have a career in professional wrestling and he's like i wasn't making any money i wasn't doing anything like no no, you need to give it another shot and sorry what year Uh, i'm just curious i'm I'm not even sure but it was like after his run of sterling golden and starving in memphis and all this other stuff and they're like and they're like no why don't you give it another shot and they got him got him going again and he really kind of kind of took off again and and led to the career that he had so it's funny that two of the biggest names in professional wrestling at one point in time, like full on quit and were working a regular day job. Nope. And it was the Briscoes and the Yukon Eric's of the world that just said, Hey man, you had some potential. Like here, here's an opportunity. Bruno took that up advice. He headed up to Toronto, making his debut March of 62. He started working at the bottom of the card. However, Bruno had some plans for self-promotion and he would soon become the man. Woo. Bruno calls up an Italian newspaper and is like, hey, I speak of the Italian. (laughs) And a reporter goes to the gym with him, where Bruno shows off his world-class strength, repping 500 pounds on bench, squatting 700 pounds. The next day in the Italian newspaper, it has a picture of Bruno with the headline, The Arrival of the Italian Samson. And after that, an Italian TV station put Bruno on TV. And with all this targeted marketing, Bruno is as over as the Capellini with the Pomodoro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Bruno starts selling out places like the Maple Leaf Garden in Toronto, the Montreal Forum, and with Whipper Billy Watson becomes a tag team champion in September of 62, his first ever professional wrestling title. Soon he was in demand by promoters all over the Canadian territories. Eventually, Vince Sr. and the newly formed www.www.www. I'm going to do this every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the joke. It's, it's, gonna be a, it's a bit. It's epi- a, it's episode a bit. 40. <laughs> Let's do the fucking bit, please. So eventually, Vince Sr. would come calling after hearing of Bruno's success. Now, their business was actually spiraling the drain. So they came back to Bruno on their hands and knees. And damn, that must have felt good for Bruno Sammartino. Right? Oh, my God. It must have been the best. Well, that's the thing. Uh, the WW. WF had a kind of a good working relationship with the Tunnies. Yeah. I mean, for for a long time, they would exchange Jack town. Tunney, uh, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Okay. It's, it's all part of that family. So that it's, you know, part of the reason why 
Jack Tunney was Jack Tunney because Jack Tunney was his real name. <laughs> but because like the Tunneys were longtime promoters in that area, so when the WWF was going, you could get local promoters. Yeah, and, like the, right. er, the early early days, like when the WWF went to Canada, you got in contact with the Tunneys and like, hey, we're coming to your town. We're, these are the dates, and like, okay, well, we will put the advertising in these markets because you you want a local promoter to know where you could advertise for your show Mm -hmm. so you'd work with a local promoter for your house shows for whatever to put whatever on tv because the local promoter would know how to promote that local area and you would come back to that area if the promoter did a good job like yeah thanks frank for for the house when we come back around we'll let you know hey we're looking at these dates and then frank can go uh we have this festival going on where a lot of people go to or hey this thing's going on here how about you come back here okay great and they come back here and they draw a big house and that's how the relationship usually works Hmm. just because Vince McMahon sitting in office Saying, I right. it's not like he's throwing darts at there, and then he himself is calling the Toronto newspaper. No, he's calling this particular promoter, and all that responsibility is delegated to him. So obviously, Vince Senior had a good relationship with the Tunnies, and they would also exchange talent. And like you know, if he's going to make a phone call to Bruno, there might be some sort of compensation. Like, hey, Bruno's a big deal for you, but we'd like to come here and be here with us. Um, in exchange, we have somebody who's finishing up here. We'll send him to you, and he'll make money for you. So th- that's kind of why everybody worked together, and that's why when they fucked Bruno, they're like, "Yeah, sure, fuck this guy, fuck this guy, who cares?" Because we work together, yeah. and and that's kind of how that all goes. But yeah, the, the it's always been legendary that the Tunnies work very well with. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So when Vince calls Bruno up, he played hardball. Bruno loved to punish people who treated him poorly on the way up. And the WWF offices called him up. They told Bruno to call Vince. And Bruno was like, no, have him call me. Click. Vince finally does. He offers him $500 a week, which was a ton of money back then. Bruno says he's almost making that in Canada. And more importantly, he's happy in Canada. Click. Which any younger people listening, when you used to hang up landlines, it would click. That's that That's that bit. <laughs> yeah, no one understood your bit. <laughs> So Vince calls back weeks later and offers Bruno 750 a week, which in today's money is 3300 a week, even though today's money isn't backed up by gold and only holds value because the market says it does. You know what? There's nothing in Fort Knox. Fuck everything. <laughs> so Bruno also turned down that offer. And Vince Sr. flat out asked him, what's it going to take to get you back? Bruno said he'd come back on one condition. He wanted Nature Boy Buddy Rogers and he wanted the title. But they knew Buddy Rogers wouldn't drop the belt to him. Buddy was even the type who would no-show or fake an injury to not drop the belt. So knowing this, Vince Sr. and Toots came up with a plan, which Bruno said it was mainly Toots because Toots didn't like Buddy. Quit quit, quit saying it. <laughs> Toots, uh, man. He, Toots, he, man. Toots, man. Now, Vince Sr., he liked Buddy Rogers. Say, Toots, not so much of a... Toots knew about Buddy's <laughs> reputation for hurting other wrestlers and bringing his own crew and hot-shelling the territory. It's true. You say it like that, it's fine. You say, so Toots... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say T. I don't Toots. know. And, and also, too, to... to to more illustrate the predicament that Vince Sr. and Toots Mound was in is, like I said, Capital Wrestling was loosely connected to the NWA, but they broke off away from the NWA when Buddy Rogers dropped the NWA title to Luthez. But what they did is they never recognized that title change. And I think the title change even happened in Toronto 
And so, like, Buddy left New York, went to Toronto, dropped the NWA title in Toronto to Luthez. When he came back to New York, the, he just had a championship belt, which a was the difference. It's like, yeah, yeah. ah, man. That's like, not, not the most, uh, like, of how things have changed. <laughs> just the and, internet and everything. I was like, damn. And no one, no one in New York knew any different. Yeah, but, yeah, he, yeah. but he was no longer the NWA champ. He was the WWF yeah, yeah, yeah. champion. And it was, like, fully recognized as but the title. But people saw a belt and saw the same shit. Yeah, and they didn't think twice right, of, like, right, what right. the letters were on it. Because it was Buddy Rogers was the champion. So like now Mandela you have effect. Mandela yeah. effect. <laughs> but see, the, you, you already made this big power play, and you've broken off from the NWA. So you can't go crawling back to the NWA and say that Luthez is the champion and do anything. And you want your own champion specifically for that area, and that belt is securely in the hands of <laughs> Buddy Rogers, who you know Bruno viewed as a con man, who he didn't like Buddy Rogers because he said that Buddy Rogers would hurt guys, he would take liberties with guys uh-huh. out of nowhere. And, and and Bruno said his big problem with Buddy was the fact that Bruno heard all those stories about Buddy, and Bruno was like, I, I've always been very um, straightforward, so I couldn't hide my disdain right. and what I'd heard about Buddy. Yeah. So he kind of showed that, and Buddy saw that right away because Buddy is... So they immediately clashed. Yeah, because yeah. Bru- oh, yeah. Buddy could pick up. Yeah. There was already a little bit of disdain coming from yeah, Bruno. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, this guy... This guy knows that I don't walk on water, so fuck him. Let's get get him out of the way. Uh. So that's, that's part of the issues with that. So Bruno definitely probably put more heat on Buddy pushing him out than Vince and, and, and Toots. But obviously, mm. you know, Vince Sr.'s coming with hat in hand. And also, too, another thing a part of the deal was is Vince Sr. paid the $500 fine that Bruno had with all these territories <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. just so he could wrestle again. That yeah. was also part of the deal. I'm like, you're also paying my fine, which is basically just your fault. Fair, since no, it, it, it is. Fuck me, you unfuck me. But I just I, but I just like that little small movement of a pawn yeah. that's like, on <laughs> top of it, you have to pay this because yeah. this was the problem that you that's created. That's right. I mean, I, when, when Bruno does that type of stuff, I couldn't agree more. As opposed to just hearing a dollar amount yeah. and like, yeah, sure, I'll take care of that. Oh, I gotta pay this too? Like, no, 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 no. I know every way that you screwed me over, and I want you to make it right at every yep. every single corner. Like that 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 is definitely dotting all the I's and yeah. crossing all the T's. And yeah. that's that's what I love about Bruna in this negotiation. Not Same. only are you gonna pay me this money, but I also know I have a five hundred dollar fine, which you will pay for, yeah. and then I also want Buddy Rogers. Well, yeah, I think right. it comes up again. Uh well we'll get it I think the the, the Australian yeah, run. Yeah, 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 we're yeah, we're gonna anyone who screwed him paid for it later. <laughs> he was sure. he wasn't a douche where he extended him or he overdid it, but he just what was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll get into that. So they came up with a plan, which I'm going to call the original screw job. Uh, and the Madison Square screw job sounds a lot cooler than the, the, the Montreal. Yeah. So they told Buddy Rogers that Bruno was getting paid $3,500 to do the job and lose to the figure four leg lock. But when Bruno and Buddy Rogers got into the ring the night of May 17th, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 1963 at Madison Square Garden, Bruno sprung the trap. He told Buddy that the finish isn't happening. I'm here to take your title. And it's not documented, but I believe at that moment, Buddy Rogers shit his pants. I don't think that's a trap. That just is, it's a straight up like, hey, what you thought was real is not real. And no. And I just, it's, it's very much like, grab your best hold. Yeah. Go ahead and grab it. Because you're going to need it. Yep. So the bell rings. Bruno does his best Brickhouse Brown impression. 
charges Buddy, legit slams him, throws him over his shoulder into a legit backbreaker and says, tap or I'm going to break your back. The bell rings and in just 48 seconds, Bruno Sammartino won his first world heavyweight championship. Which I feel like Buddy Rogers was like, legit gave up because he's like I, listen I, I'm not getting hurt he's so yeah. dangerous he's probably bewildered and like what's going on I'll, I'll just we'll deal with it in the, we'll deal with it in post yeah we'll deal exactly. With it in post. exactly you got the, he's, Bruno's probably the strongest man in the world yeah. at this time what's Buddy Rogers gonna do or there's that whole thing it's like this guy's gone AWOL he's gone nuts um, this won't matter we'll we'll do some angle and we'll get it back but this guy's gone crazy so he'll get you know yeah, yeah and he screw- probably yeah. feels like the remoters are on his side and yeah. like we'll just ignore yeah. We'll yeah. just ignore this the way that we ignored the Thez title change, yeah. and we'll fix this later. Bruno went rogue. Yeah. Like, that's the whole thing. Yeah. And then he gets to the back and realizes, oh, oh, you're on their man. side. Yeah. 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 I definitely feel like that. So, <laughs> aside from a tag match at Madison Square Garden, this is, would more or less be the end of the Bruno and Buddy feud. And I think it's say the safe in real life and kayfabe. Bruno won. Mm-hmm. What was it? Didn't Buddy get hurt? They were going to do a rematch, and then he, Buddy... Buddy claimed that he had a heart attack. Buddy retired or, after this, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but Buddy claimed that he had a heart attack a few weeks before, yeah. and that's why it turned out the way it did. But as Bru- oh, oh. as Bruno always documents, no, 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 he was working like the day before. Yeah, yeah So right, if he yeah. had a heart attack, it would have affected him on those matches and not this match, so... That's all made. I mean, Bruno gave him the heart attack, so... Yeah. In Roger. that moment, he gave him a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. If Rogers hadn't of retired, their rematch would have been October 4th, 63 in New Jersey. But instead, that night, Bruno would have a match with the number one contender, Gorilla Monsoon. So after winning the title, Bruno became a huge celebrity. He was loved not just by the Italian immigrants, but by every race and every background. He came off as a larger-than-life man with super strength, but at the same time, an everyman. He was the guy that came in from the old country, and he had made it. He was the original Death the Road working yeah. man. Not, not even the fact that he's an Italian immigrant coming over. He was just an immigrant. And at, at this time, you know, people are one generation removed yeah. from their their parents being immigrants, and, and they're the first children born in America. Just the idea that he had come over and found success at this level in New York and Madison Square Garden and won the title and built the way he is, everybody can get behind that. Yeah. Everybody uh, loves an underdog. I mean, Italian, German, yep. whatever can get behind that immediately. And to give you an idea of how famous Bruno was, he was friends with Frank Sinatra. He he worked out with Arnold Schwarzenegger. His family had a private audience with the Pope. Uh, was it Bruno was like a judge at one of Arnold's early like Miss, Mr. Olympia or competitions or something? Yeah, and uh, Arnold was like, that guy looks better than <laughs> us. So, like, and he's a judge. Yeah, it was something like that's how they met. And he really bought into the face gimmick. He always dressed nice. He never acted out. He wouldn't even drink if there were kids around. Oh, that was one of the... I was like, that is ridiculous and silly, but I tip my hat to you, sir, because you're insane in a good way. (laughs) You want to know another good story about how good of a guy he was? The night he won the title... The the way he celebrated... He was actually staying in a a rundown hotel uh, not far from the building... So it wasn't anything fancy because all he could afford was like a cheap hotel room, and on the uh, like it was like a row of hotels, and they had a lot of like pay phones because obviously there's you know hotel phones. So he called his wife 
after winning the title and he go, and he go just to call her and check in yeah. and he goes hey honey tonight I won the, the world title at Madison Square Garden she goes I know it's on the news here in <laughs> Pittsburgh I'm aware that you just won the world title congratulations you, 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 you know your mom's here and she loves you and all that and he goes oh thank you that's very nice very good. tell her I love her too and then he hung up went to a deli and got an entire uh, rotisserie chicken and a quart of milk and that's how he celebrated his first ever Nowadays, title. Nowadays, we're in some Vegas club with the music no. pumping and Cavassier and blah, 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 blah. That was his world title ce- yeah. celebration was a whole chicken and a quart of milk and a call to his wife. You know what? That's I, I respect that. That is wholesome. <laughs> so Bruno would be the face and ambassador of professional wrestling. Uh, selling out arenas not just across America but across the world with everyone in the building chanting his name except for a few smarks in the back with bullet club shirts (laughs) over the next few years literal years Bruno held on to the championship working a brutal non-stop schedule facing and beating the likes of the Sheik, Killer Koloski, Gorilla Monsoon and George Still and he wasn't wrestling your 12 minute Monday Night Raw main event He was going 20, 30, 60 minutes a night, wrestling in an era of no safety regulations in boxing rings. And boxing rings, you're legally only supposed to fall down in three times a night. Yeah, and here's here's the thing, because I um, did a lot of background uh, information for this podcast. I actually did a 45-minute phone interview with Bruno's agent, Sal Sal Corrente, who gave us a lot of good tidbits on the Yoko. Oh, shit. Um, interview Yoko podcast, which is available in our archives. So check that out. Uh, but Sal was telling me that Bruno during this first title run was just run ragged more, more so than any other champion that they had had at the time, no. especially in this territory. Like he was working like not just the big towns, but also the small towns. And like you said, working longer matches, but like they would have, like I said, they'd have different promotions like in Pittsburgh and Allentown, all these places. And sometimes they would have the champ skip it, but not with Bruno. They just kept putting Bruno out there. Cause he was so big. They knew the money they could get. Yeah. Right? And yeah, they, they like, could just generate all this money. Every show. And then also too, other guys on the crew weren't going to all the towns, but him as the champion was going to all the towns. So the other guys on the undercard uh, weren't required to go all the, to all the towns. Oh. They would give them rest, but him as the champion <laughs> was doing all the heavy lifting, which is the complete opposite of obviously a Brock Lesnar. We're yeah, like, yeah. oh, he's the top guy. Yeah, Let's yeah, give yeah. him a break. It was the opposite. Oh, you're the top guy. We're going to work you to death. So during this entire like seven-year run, he has just run ragged, more so than anybody else on the roster. Also, too, if you look at the like the results... Like you'll read some of these these listings during these times when he's the champion and he's selling out the gardens, you can't recognize some of the names. Like you've already stumbled over some of the names he's wrestled, but a lot of his undercards in the garden are guys you never have heard of before <laughs> in wrestling. It's not like he has, you know, Pedro Morales, yeah. Killer Kowalski, Yukon yeah. Eric, the Kangaroos. What they would do is if they had good undercard guys, like like the Kangaroos, like a good supporting act, yeah. they would put them in the B towns and just have solely have Bruno alone in the A towns drawing the entire house. So it was all greed is they would take like some wow. of the more popular undercard guys and put them on the B shows and stack the B shows up. You know, like, like the really good supporting cast, instead of putting them with Bruno for help 
for promotion. They just put them in the B towns, so they were basically getting two sellouts a night. That is insane. So basically, Bruno was selling out the garden by himself, but he was also selling out all the smaller towns, which normally the champion didn't have to go to. So he was just run so ragged that by the time he got to like the seven year, eighth month, like spot, he was like, "Get this belt <laughs> off of me right now." On January 18th, 1971, Bruno San Martino would face Ivan Koloff at Madison Square Garden, which is on YouTube in a condensed version of the match with some weird-ass fan commentary. Oh my god, it. it's so weird! <laughs> the top comment on the video is, the commentator overdobe sounds like he has a mouthful of fucking meatballs. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it's so... Koloff wins with a top rope uh, knee drop. Knee drop. And the whole thing is like, uh, was it um, Bruno thought he went deaf because the whole place yeah. was dead silent. And he was like, well, am I okay? And then a uh, dude came over to him and was like, yeah. And he said something to him. He was like, oh, I'm not deaf. Just MSG was just in shock. Yeah, that, that's I think like Bill Apter played a audio tape of like a video or not a video but a, a radio reporter who was there at the time and he was recording the exact moment when the finish happened and wow. it was just utter shock and yeah. just silence had come over the building when it happened because I mean seven years eight yeah. months yeah. one day like uh, you know like just Bruno was an institution it's like the Yankees they will always go out and they will always play and Babe Ruth will go out and hit a home run but on this day the Yankees don't run out of the dugout, you know, like that's like an institution. And for someone like Ivan Koloff, you know, to get a, a spot like that is, is amazing. Like for him to get the, the opportunity to be that guy is just unbelievable. Seriously. So yeah, there were no boos. Bruno said that when he walked to the back, people in the crowd were sobbing. Bruno had held the belt for seven years Eight months, one day, longer than John Cena, CM Punk, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Macho Man, Ultimate Warrior combined. The only person that even comes close to that in the WWE is Backlund, who had it for 2,100 days, and Hogan with 1,400 days. So after losing the belt, Bruno took some much-needed time off. He went home to Ross Township, Pennsylvania to spend time with his wife, Carol, who he had married in 59. And he stayed with her his entire life. They had three sons, fraternal twins Danny and Daryl, and David, who became a pro wrestler himself. As you could imagine, during an eight-year title run, uh, he didn't get a lot of time with his family, so he's happy to finally be there. So when he went back to wrestling, he worked the territories and Japan, but he was setting his own schedule. And this allowed Bruno to actually rest and heal in between shots. And he said this let him love wrestling again. But in 72, San Martino was asked back by Vince Sr. for another title run, as then-champion Pedro Morales wasn't doing near the numbers that Bruno had. Vince promised Bruno not only more money, but a reduced workload, only wrestling the biggest shows. So by December 10th of 73, Stan Stasiak had beaten Pedro for the title, and that's who Bruno would face at Medicine Square Garden. Now, there is also shortened footage of this match from the same guy who I mentioned earlier, so watch it at your own risk. <laughs> but this clip doesn't even show the finish. Either way, it's cool, rare footage, and I appreciate the upload. Bruno would win the match to become the first ever two-time WWF heavyweight champion of the world. 
So this title run was supposed to just last a year while Vince groomed a new champion. But as promised, Bruno was actually given a lighter schedule, which he loved, so he didn't mind it when Vince never brought anyone to him to take the belt. So that one year turned into two, which turned into three, uh, during which he'd face the likes of Ernie Lag, Larry Henning, uh, Killer Kowalski, and eventually Stan Hansen, who he faced April 26, 1976. Snap. So Hansen was a young guy at the time who had just been caught up to New York uh, with the help of Bruno after a recommendation of a friend who lived out in Dallas. Stan Hansen's first match at Madison Square Garden would be against the man who built the place, Bruno San Martino. Maybe it was nerves. Maybe it was just one of those things where you botch something. Uh, wide receivers drop passes, seven-footers miss dunks. But on a routine spot, Hansen slammed Bruno right on top of his head, breaking Bruno's neck, and it looks fucking brutal. Yeah, well, it was just a body slam, right? Yeah, yeah. He just body got slam, really excited on the body slam. Just really excited. You pick him up, and you get sweaty. You get moving like that. And that's something that, like, when I talk to young wrestlers and especially George gave the gave the speech a lot when he would first teach young wrestlers about the body slam. Yeah. He would always say like, look, the body slam's a dangerous thing. I mean, Bruno San Martino got his neck broke yeah. on a body slam. Right. Biggest looks, name in the business against Stan Hansen, another one of the biggest names in the business. Looks simple, but it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's and and also too like Another thing a lot of young guys do is they'll pick up for the body slam and then move their hand and tuck Not the guy's support. head. And they're like, oh, well, I was trying to protect his neck. No, don't move your hand so I don't end up like Bruno Sampertino. Yeah. Just pick me up, hold me, and then slam me down. All these guys today want to move their hands like Shawn Michaels, but like if the guy doesn't have a good post on the thigh or if he misses the thigh, it, it just turns into the like whole you thing. Can't duck your head, tuck your head enough to, yeah, to compensate. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it, it just, it's just one of those freak things is freak accidents always the example it's always the story i tell right before i already tell these people who are already nervous about a body slam yeah. to, to you let can ruin a man's life <laughs> yeah it's like this is this is dangerous and it's something that that fans and wrestlers like always forget about but that's that that story is why i've never moved my hand on a body slam ever because I want to make sure that I have you and I take care of you in all moments in time because just the smallest thing oh. can go wrong. And then it's just a reminder of that. And it just so happened, it happened to one of the names, biggest names in the business. And the breaking of this neck, it was traumatic for the promotion. He was, uh, I don't know if you're going to get to this or not, but he was in the hospital. Vince Sr. came to him and basically said that the promotion was going to go under. Yeah. Damn. It's like, we need you to come back. We need you to get out of traction. Like, there's great magazine pictures of Bruno. The halo. With, with the halo in the neck. And just thinking and just thinking about Vince Sr. walking in and saying, if you don't get out of this condition and wrestle the rematch with Stan Hansen, the promotion will go under. Do you understand how many families will be miserable and lose money and crash because you won't help them give them paychecks yeah, <laughs> like, like fuck well, and stan hansen when I, so did anybody that uh, had a bad day at work and kind of screwed up and then uh you have hope because stan hansen did this and then went on to have a amazing unbelievable almost, career. almost killed the entire new york territory <laughs> yeah. 
on one botch. And then, so, so when we sit around and we laugh at stuff on Botchamania, <laughs> yeah. none of those spots are going to take down an, an entire territory. But then, but then he went to Japan to be a god, so maybe that makes sense. Well, that was the whole thing with Stan, and it also speaks to the character of Bruno. He wasn't pumped that he broke his neck, but he understood <laughs> that things happen. And not only did Bruno not hold any grudge against Stan for breaking his neck, he was happy for him because Stan Hansen became the fucking guy that broke Bruno San Martino's neck and his career took off. Yeah, sometimes it's a horrible accident. It just happens that way. And sometimes yeah. I often think like, man, I wish I'd really fuck up so I can get a name for myself. <laughs> My problem is I'm too fucking good at taking care of people and making people look good. I really need to fuck up real bad. The Zane killer. Oops, killed Zane. Yeah, or something. <laughs> All right. So two months after breaking his neck, for the sake of the promotion, Bruno returned and faced Hansen in a rematch on June 25th of 76 at... Shea Stadium. Now, on closed circuit TV, this was the undercard of Ali and Inoki in the Northeast. The match was originally supposed to be Bruno and Ali, but it didn't happen for two reasons. First of all, Bruno broke his neck, and Vince couldn't afford the $6 million that Muhammad Ali wants. <sighs> However, Japan could, and they sent over Inoki to face Ali. Now, uh, Noki was a god in Japan, but not so much in America, so tickets weren't selling, and that's why Bruno had to be on the card, even with his legit broken neck. Hmm. They worked around it, they had the match anyway, and the event bombed everywhere else that didn't have Bruno and Stan on the card. Saving the day, as Bruno San Martino could only do. So Bruno got a couple more weeks off to Hill and hopped right back into his schedule, working with people like the Executioner Number 1, Stan Hansen, and Bruiser Brody. But by spring of 77, Bruno told Vince Sr. that he was too beat up to keep going. He basically said, find someone now or I'm going to quit. And then and Vince Sr. was like, I've heard this one before. Where yeah. have I heard this before? Uh, I don't think you are. <laughs> On April 30th, 1977, at the Civic Center in Baltimore, Maryland, he'd face superstar Billy Graham for the title. Bruno said it was easy working with Billy because fans hated him so much. They loved Bruno so much, so they were always going to have that awesome crowd reaction. The whole match is basically a test of strength spot, which is the story they were trying to tell. Bruno wasn't always the biggest guy in the ring, but he was the strongest, kayfabe and shoot. But here was Billy Graham who could finally challenge him. Eventually, superstar Billy Graham uh, rolls up Bruno with his feet on the ropes getting the one two three and the crowd loses their fucking minds as uh, they should Billy grabs his belt runs to the locker room before there is a literal riot Bruno's second and final title run lasted three years four months 20 days after losing the title for the second time Bruno cut back his schedule a lot but he still worked in the U.S. and around the world wrestling people like Harley Race, Black Jack Mulligan, and Crippler Ray Stevens. Bruno also began working for as a color commentator for the now WWF. So when the great Larry Zabisco was a teenager, he lived near Bruno, and Bruno was his hero. He'd bug Bruno about wanting to become a pro wrestler. Stock. I think Stock, stock is, is probably He drove there. by, and Larry would talk about... How he found 
he did detective work because like he found Bruno's address through like legit stalking detective work <laughs> would drive by there every once in a while and finally he drove by Bruno's house to where he saw him out there like watering his lawn or something so then Larry gets out and like creeps in the bushes to the point where he's noticeable and Bruno's like what 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 is this over here and then they made friends on Larry being a total creep yeah. <laughs> I mean the Go out and reach for the uh, stars. It got so bad that Larry's mom called Bruno and asked him to talk Larry into going to college because Larry had every intention of not and becoming a wrestler. So Bruno promised Larry that if he got a degree, Bruno would help him break into wrestling. And that is exactly what happened. After college, Bruno trained him. Uh, He helped him get into local shows, some national work, and later he brought him up to New York. Larry was known as Bruno's protege, but eventually he wanted to step out of his shadow and that's when Larry and Bruno had a workout match in Allentown, Pennsylvania, January 22nd of 1980. The point of the match wasn't really to win, but to kind of see who could outmaneuver each other. Watching all this, the Zabisco-Bruno feud, watching the the promos, the buildup, um, everything about this is, is, it was my favorite part of doing the Bruno research. The way, like, Zabisco cuts a promo where he's like, everyone that I've wanted to face, I have, except you, Bruno, and you haven't done it. And Bruno reluctantly eventually takes it because he doesn't want to turn down the pupil. He wants to give the pupil his moment. Yeah. But they finally have the match, and Bruno, Bruno, Bruno gets a hold. And then he releases the hold. And then they do a little thing. Bruno gets another hold, and they release that hold. And it's this whole thing of where he's not really committing to anything, so it's not a real competition. Eventually, that's what leads to Larry getting upset, and he takes a chair, and he bashes it over Bruno's head, bloodies him, colors him up, all because Bruno wouldn't take him serious as a competitor, and that's all that Larry wanted and that's what turns this sour. Which is a great story. And that chair shot gave Bruno a permanent scar above his eye. And this would make Larry public enemy number one. Their feud led to a big blow-off match in a still cage August 9th, 1980, in front of almost 40,000 fans at Shea Stadium. Unbelievable. Which was around a $500,000 gate. <laughs> yeah. Zabisco said in a shoot interview that he got 5% of the Shea Stadium gate, and then uh, Bruno got 55 or 6%, but I, I thought that was really interesting and good, good little nerd stuff. Some of that had to do with Hogan and Andre being on the card too, which no, is no, we no, talked no. about in uh, our earlier Andre episode. I don't think it did because uh, here, here I'm gonna totally believe uh, Bruno on this stuff because he talks about how Hogan in his book talks about how they drew the whole card, but on Andre and Hogan, I think did a date like a week or two weeks ago where it was 3,500 capacity and they only drew 1,200. So to draw was 35,000. Like, the build-up to this feud, go on YouTube, find all the Zabisco Bruno stuff. There's good, like, they show the whole evolution of this. I I fell in love with this feud watching this stuff, man. It is so good. Uh, Zabisco talks about how Bruno booked the entire feud, like the pacing of the feud, how to amp up each little moment throughout the week and how Bruno's like slow simmering burning coming to a boil promos that would really pull people in I mean like this is this is good shit man and I cannot recommend this enough so the Zabisco San Martino match would win PWI's match of the year 
Well, and another uh, little nugget of this whole feud is people always refer to Bruno San Martino as the living legend, the Bruno San, yeah. Bruno San Martino. So once Larry turned on Bruno, Larry referred to himself as the living legend, Larry Sabisco. So like when I finally discovered who Larry Zabisco was, not knowing who Bruno San Martino yeah, is, I thought just, oh, calling himself the living legend is an adorable thing that he yeah. calls himself yeah. as a heel, but finding out that there's a long yep. lineage of why he calls him that in a long story makes it that much more fascinating. Totally. I mean, like, uh, I, I knew Zabisco because growing up on Monday Nitro and the living legend Larry Zabisco yeah. is here and the human game of chess and mm-hmm. all that shit. And then when I was getting into this and Bruno's getting called the living legend and then learning about their feud, it was that good Eureka oh, oh moment. And it was like, ah, oh, man, there's just years later in the smallest little moments, the storyline is still there and it's still damn good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you actually watch the match, is a lot of fun. Uh, Bruno's going 100 miles an hour. Larry is selling his ass off. Uh, eventually, a bloody-armed Bruno steps out of the cage, beating Larry Zabisco. And then they fight outside the ring, too. <laughs> like, it's not really over. They still beat each other up. So, after this, Bruno would work a very would relaxed schedule for the rest of 1980 and into 81. And on August 12th, 81, Bruno would announce his retirement. But like 99.9% of wrestlers, he wouldn't stay retired. Uh, Well, he also had to delay his retirement because they wanted Bruno to be in the Meadowlands, which were getting built. And obviously in New York with construction... Things are never on time. So they're like, oh, Bruno, the Meadowlands aren't going to be done in time for your retirement. We need you to hang on a little bit longer. And it's like, all right, fine. So like, they really wanted him to wrestle in the Meadowlands before he retired. And so he had to delay it because construction in New York is never done on time. And with Bruno San Martino retiring, this is a good conclusion for Bruno San Martino Part 1, although Bruno would not be done with professional wrestling, and we will pick that up in Bruno Part 2. So guys, do you have final thoughts on Bruno San Martino's in-ring career? I mean, he's the man. It's as simple as that. I mean, like I said at the top of this episode, when you talk about success and you're throwing out analogies, even in a joking jest, you're like, oh, it's like Bruno in the garden. Like, it's it's just synonymous. It's like Nick said, when you're getting really nerdy and you look up the Wikipedia title runs and you're like, what the hell is this? And you learn about this guy and how did he do this? And yeah, I, I can't wait to get into part two. I guess I guess I'll save everything for that. I don't think pro wrestling was ever more beloved and respected than when Bruno San Martino was on top. He made it classy. He made it uh, mainstream. Just the numbers you hear about just sound cartoonish and made up. Wrestling is better for having Bruno San Martino in it. And um, for part two, there will be a little drama um, with uh, WWF, and we'll get into that next episode. So let's wrap up. 
We're Ten Bell Pod on all the social medias, tenbellpod.com. Check out Six Squirrel Studios. Uh, check out our Patreon if you want to help us out. I am uh, Nick Olesa on all the social medias, jtrotter27 on Twitter, Man Scout Manning on all the social medias. This is Ten Bell Pod. Bye.